Welcome. Uh, my name is Thomas Steininger. I have with me Jonathan Bachot from Canada. Jonathan, uh, I came across you and your work uh, a year ago. Uh, you are talking about something that I found very intriguing. You talk about the reality and the validity of the symbolic world. So from a modern enlightened perspective, symbolic world has something that's powerful, that can be very intriguing, but it's just symbolic. It's not scientific. It's not depicting the real. So what I found very uh, intriguing and your background is Christian Orthodox and you have the whole world of Orthodox symbolism that you draw from, a claim that basically enlightened modern perspective has a misunderstanding what reality is about. And that there's a different way to think and relate to reality that is deeply symbolic and is not less real, uh, but even more real than what we usually call the scientific reality that we live in, in our modern enlightened days, so to say. Um, how so? How can be something that's just symbolic <laughs> be more real than so something that is uh, basically measurable, uh, that you can uh, verify. Uh, we, we, we developed all the scientific methodology to kind of discriminate things that have a claim to truth and not a claim to truth. How can be something that's not even cl claiming to be scientific can have a claim to be more real than what we usually call scientific? So the first thing I could say is that it's mostly about, about the frame. It starts with that, you could say is that symbolism or ancient mythological way of thinking, the first thing it does is it tells you where to look. You could say it that way. The, one of the things that's coming out that's in cognitive science in the, these new perspectives, especially in terms of the study of complexity and the idea of emergence, all of these things that are kind of on the lips of everybody in terms of, the, uh, of different practices, whether it's science, organizational structure, all of this, is people are realizing the problem of attention or the problem of, you could call it something like, uh, I think uh, John Verveke calls it combinatorial explosion, which is that the world is actually made of too many things. Every single thing that you can name has an indefinite amount of complexity uh, attached to it. And so mm -hmm. there are different levels of reality uh, that you can attend to for every single thing that you can think of in the universe, basically. So the question is, if that's the case, then how is it that we're able to sift through that? How are we able to be able to make sense of something which has indefinite potential for complexity or, or for multiplicity, let's say? It kind of splinters into indefinite chaos, you know? Um, and this is where the idea of the symbolic world comes in already. That is, things like stories or patterns, patterns of attention, are the way in which we're able to frame reality. The very identities of things are very mysterious. Like, uh, let's say you take a, a chair. A chair, we think that it's one thing, but a chair is not one thing, or it's not just one thing. A chair is millions and millions and millions of things. It's, a, it's an indefinite amount of things. But somehow we're able to condense that multiplicity into into one, and we're able to see a chair as one thing. And a chair is not a big deal, but if you go higher up in, a, in the, let's say, hierarchy of things that exist, 
it becomes even more complicated. Like how are we able to say that a family is one thing or that a city is one thing or that a country is one thing, that these are, these are so big and have so many, so many aspects to them that nonetheless we're able to perceive it. And the solution that I, I'm trying to help people see is that it has something to do with attention. It has something to do with purpose. And it has something to do with this. I'm going to use a word that people are going to freak out, but it has something to do with love. That is that there is a way in which multiplicity and unity coexist together. And this is what is captured in ancient religious stories, in ritual, um, and in images. And ritual is probably the easiest way for us to understand it on a human term, because we realize that human interaction are always ritualized. That if I, if I talk to someone, there are ways in which I am allowed or by all these measures that I enter into relationship with you, I have to look you in the eye, I shake your hand, I say hello, uh, you know, I don't do certain things, you know, I won't, uh, I won't take my clothes off <laughs> while I'm talking to you. There are many things, there's so many things that we do. This is a ritualized reality. And so the Enlightenment has wanted us to, to believe that ritual is somewhat superimposed on reality, that it is superstitious or that it is uh, interesting but not necessary to reality. But as we deal with this problem of combinatorial explosion, we realize that no, in fact, the world has to be ritualized in terms of human interaction, or it has to be organized in a hierarchy of purpose when it comes to any object that you perceive in the world at all. Anything that you perceive has to be organized in this hierarchy of purpose or else you won't attend to it. And the same with stories. So in order for you, because while if I tell you something that happened to me, there are a billion things that happen simultaneously at the same time. But for some reason, I am not telling you about those things. I am attending to certain things and I'm attaching facts together in a sequence. And that sequence will have to have a form. And that form is, is the same form as the story in Genesis or the myth of Hercules or all of these stories in order for us to be able to attend to have to have a pattern. So when I talk about the symbolic world, it's to be able to see the pattern by which multiplicity joins together in unity, that it's not arbitrary, that there really is a way in which that happens. Uh, and you can describe it, you can talk about it, and you can give examples of it. I think uh, many people will agree with that. And uh, obviously, we live in rituals. As you, as you just said, when we meet each other, we have rituals, how we greet each other and what we do and what we don't. Different cultures do different things, but in a culture, they are agreed on rituals. And there are stories that we uh, tell about ours. Even our modern scientific paradigm is a story about progress and rationality. So in, 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 in that sense, if, even that is a story. But it is, at the same time, we usually make the distinction between myth and rationality and say in previous times, we have organized our social context via myths. We have created big stories and the, and the stories, maybe the biblical stories, maybe other stories, maybe the old Homerian stories, they organized our understanding who we are. But now we came to a different level where we started to organize our life, our social life, our stories around the insights of rational findings 
that is provided by science. So in that, the claim for stories is intact, but basically it's secondary to the, to the findings of, of science. But if I understand you right, you think this is a misunderstanding of what the power of the symbol and the power of the mytholo mythological world is about. First, is that true? Yeah. And yeah. So you why? could say, you could say, let's say we take it at a level of a society. Mm -hmm. Now, <clears throat> we're actually, let's say in America, we see it very, very, uh, it become, it's becoming clearer and clearer, which is that there's a difference between, there's a difference between a group that is bound together and a group that is uniformly spread on a surface without connection with each other. And so the, the, the idea of a community is different from a crowd, let's say, or from a random, random accumulation of people. Um, the, the community can do things together. They recognize each other as being together. The crowd, it's all strangers. They're surrounded by strangers. They don't have a common purpose. They don't have a common goal. They're just there in the space, each person doing their own thing. Now, this ends up being the difference between people who are attached to a common image, a common story, a common purpose, and people who are not. And so as we, as we, as we have fragmented the stories, that we've said, we don't need these stories anymore. All we need is reason and science and all of that. What we have watched is we have watched society fragment and we have watched the stories devolve into multiple stories to a point where now every individual is somehow has their own tyrannical story that they try to impose on others. And we're, we don't know how to deal with this. The suburbs in America are the best example of this because in the suburbs in America, people do not know their neighbors. And I'm not joking. They, uh, they know maybe their first neighbor, but not their second neighbor and not their third neighbor. And they don't know anybody else on the street. Now, obviously, they certainly do not know people on the other street, those completely. And so they're, all of a sudden, community is fragmenting into this crowd where we have all these people living there. And so this, is, this sounds like it's not a big deal when there's, when, how can I say this, when there's no crisis. But when a crisis starts to manifest itself, itself then the, the, the fracture inside the, the different individuals that have no connection together starts to manifest it, itself. And we can see in America and the United States especially, we can now see the fault lines where within the country, there are massive fault lines between men and women, between different gender, between races, between different social classes. All of these are, are becoming more, are becoming louder because we don't know why we're together. We have no common story or we're just trying to destroy the common story. And so we're not able to, to bind together as a group in order to, to do what we're doing. The best would be to think of a, of, a, of a sports team. A sports team is the easiest way to understand. If the sports team forgets its goal or what's binding it together, the story, winning the cup, winning the championship, uh, being the best team as a, you know, in order to, to beat the other teams, then they're not going to play the sport very well. And at some point, the team is going to dissolve into nothing. And this is the point where we are. We kind of realize that this is going on, but we don't know what to do. But at least recognizing the problem, which is that a story is what binds multiplicity together, identity, uh, purpose. These are the things that bind, it, that bind you together. It, a company, uh, you know, 
We would never think that a company is only based on rational means. That would be insane. A company has to do something. Like you have to make a certain thing. You have to be able to point all your employees and say, we are making toasters. We're going to make the best toasters. And now that we have this common goal, then we can apply reason at the different level to be able to, 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 uh, to identify what it is we need to do to reach the common goal. But reason and science can't tell you what you're going to do. They can't tell you what you need to attend to, what's important. Because you can make toasters or you can make nuclear weapons or you can make biological weapons to, to kill everybody using science and reason. Science and reason will give you the means to do anything you want, whether it's torture the most amount of people or help the most amount of people have better shoes or whatever it is that you're aiming at. But the aim, it comes from somewhere else. It comes from a story world. You said something very crucial right now. You said reason and science cannot tell us what to do. Why? And if that's the case, what can tell us what to do? You mean the, that, well, the good. I mean, the, the ancient, the ancient uh, world was organized around the notion of the good. Now, there could be discussion about what the good was and what in the hierarchy of goods was the highest good. Uh, but there was at least a sense that we not only need to identify the good, but we have to ultimately worship the good. We have to celebrate it. We have to stand together in together facing the good. That's what a church service does. So imagine an ancient village where everybody every week stands together and stands in front of the God of love. And that becomes the overarching principle supposed to something. Obviously we're going to go awry. We're going to, we're not always going to be able to completely submit to that, that divine principle, but at least it becomes the aim that we're, that we have. But if, if we don't have that aim, then, then we're going to start to, because reason doesn't, doesn't tell you what's good. At least science can't tell you what's good. It can, it, can tell you, it can tell you how to get to the good, right? Because there's no difference between a living body and a dead body for science. It depends what you want, right? A dead body is, has as many molecules, as many chemical processes as a living body. But you have to be able to decide what it is that you're aiming towards to analyze or to understand or to reproduce. But either one is, they can't tell you that, the science can never, can't tell you that a, a quasar is better or worse than a human brain. It's like they don't have the means to tell you what's better. I don't know if that makes sense. It does make sense. And uh, to make it concrete, uh, and also because uh, you, you do have uh, a Christian Orthodox background, and uh, even people who have uh, no direct relationship to Orthodoxy do uh, recognize that there's something powerful about Orthodox icons. And orthodox icons, uh, when you relate it to the good or the beautiful, there is also something powerful that I think many people, religious or not religious, can relate to, that when you're in the presence of an icon, uh, it asks something from you, a certain, relation, a certain relationship. There's something that's not just kind of, oh, this is a nice art, but there's, some, there's something you can, however you relate to it, but you, you feel that some kind of respect is asked for. You may be denied or give the respect, but there's something where an icon asks for participation. Yeah. And I think this is also where you see the relationship between symbols and ritual, that this is a world that asks to participate in, 
and has a direct participation that comes out of a aesthetic, spiritual, I don't know which, um, a recognition of what the symbol tells you. Yeah. Well, it's something about how you bind imagery together, that uh-huh. it, it has an objective quality, objective in the sense that it's not, it's not based on your whims, like you said. That is, that the fact that, the, uh, that icons are rep- represent, represent a saint, let's say, very calmly, kind of, uh, let's say, mostly looking straight. Uh, we tend to recognize people in their face. And so icons will tend to show people's face. And so that's where you kind of see a person. Uh, and so this idea is that you encounter a person in an icon almost more than you do <coughs> in, in everyday life where we're busy, where we're distracted. You stand now in front of, the, of, a, of a person and you have this encounter. And there's something, so the language, let's say the language that has been used to build up iconography is a language which is based on the same thing which makes us shake people's hands or look them in the eyes or you know, not do something distracting while you're discussing with them. It's just that we've condensed that, that participation in a person. We've condensed that into an image which brings all the elements almost like purely together, let's say. And so uh, it's the difference, let's say, it's the same type of symbolism which will differentiate, let's say, a formal dinner from uh, like going to the movies, where the type of interaction you have will be ritually condensed into, into a certain form. So these things are, are objective. They have variability. That is obviously different cultures will have slightly different ways of manifesting. But the variability, just like biological, let's say like there's a variability in how dogs do certain things, but there's still a pattern. And this pattern is a universal pattern. Uh, and so everybody would have been able to, everybody in the world would be able to recognize the difference between, let's say, an icon of Christ and a pornographic image. And they would be able to recognize that the way that you interact with one or the other is, is different based on the very elements which constitute it. So would you say, because you are not only an orthodox thinker, you, you are also an iconograph. Iconographer, is this right? Yeah, yeah, iconograph, iconographer, iconographer. Yourself. So you you are making orthodox icons. You engage in producing uh, symbols of the sacred. And the way I understand, because it's also very obvious when you look, uh, let's stay with the orthodox uh, symbolism, that orthodox symbolism is different than even Catholic or Protestant symbolism of Christianity, there's something where it's less individualistic. It's less kind of taken out of so-called life. There's mm-hmm. something which is particular universal, particular uh, transcendent, or how, mm-hmm. how I say, but it is coming in the image of, human, of a human face. There's a saint, there's Mary, there's Christ. But what, what is tried to be expressed there seems to be something that is beyond the personal or at least beyond the individual. Or, or beyond the, it's not the idiosyncratic. So every, every, every phenomenon or every encounter has a center and a margin. And so mm-hmm. when I encounter you, you know, I can, I can look you in the eyes and have an interaction with you as a person. But, I, but as a, the world is messy. So on the fringe of you, maybe you didn't shave very well today, or maybe you've got something going on, like your hair is a little off or your eyebrows are too shaggy. Like everybody has a kind of uh, a kind of wildness about them, let's say. 
And so in, in a lot of Renaissance, post-Renaissance art and into the Baroque and to the Romantic, there was a de desire to focus on the, the, the fringe element. Whereas in icons and it, in other cultures, you have similar type of imagery. There's a desire to, to kind of crunch that, crunch that idiosyncrasy into basic central elements of a person. So to find a way to represent the image of a person in a way that you still recognize that person, but you're, you're not distracted by the, by the fringe, let's say. Um, and so that's why when you encounter, when you have this experience of an icon, it kind of draws you in. You could say it draws you into the most calm, centered aspect of you for the very, for this, for the very reason that it doesn't focus on idiosyncrasy. If you look at a like a, if you look at a Baroque image where you see a drunk man, you know, with his red nose and you can see that he's got his pores and you can notice that he, he didn't sleep the night before because he's got bags under his blue, blue bags under his eyes. And you're looking at a painting of that, then the type of attention it'll ask of you will be a, a, a different type of attention than the one you come in front of an icon, which tends to crunch all of that into a, a simpler, a simpler, more aesthetic experience, you could say. You also say it the other way around, because when you look, for example, an icon of Mary, Mother Mary, and uh, you look at it and you compare it with other icons of other cultures, let's say Shakti in India, mm. these are different icons <laughs> in, 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 in different cultural contexts, but it seems also that in the different cultural contexts, there's something that becomes visible in, in the icon that otherwise is not accessible for me, that there's something in seeing an icon and in the Christian icon, uh, Mother Mary, in a Hindu icon, maybe a Shakti, uh, where something becomes uh, visible that only becomes visible in the symbol. If that's the case, uh, the symbolic world is able to show me something that uh, a scientific world is not able to show me. Is that where you would say that the symbolic world has a reality that the scientific world is missing. Um, yes, but it has an, an analogous aspect in the scientific world. The scientific okay. world is also symbolic in the sense that I'm speaking about it, which is that this, in a scientific process, you have two parts of the scientific process. You have the theory and then you have the, 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 the facts and the facts have margin, they have idiosyncrasies, they have uh, exceptions. And these things are there in the experimentation. Everybody knows, right? There are, there are things which actually don't totally kind of follow the theory. And if there aren't a lot, then you kind of leave them to the side. Uh, but then sometimes there are certain facts that will completely embody the theory in a way that is magical almost. And strangely enough, that, those are the facts that the scientists will obviously focus on. Like if someone writes a paper, he'll write a paper about, and if he gives examples of certain processes, he'll give examples of those where the invisible pattern, which is the, the, the theory and the visible world actually connect. And so the exemplary uh, scientific experiment where all of this comes together is an image of, is similar to what an icon will do to you, which is that when you see that, you're like, yes, Now I understand this theory. I can see the theory in the experiment. But in reality, everybody knows that the truth about the, the, the scientific experiment is that it's, it's actually, it has a fringes and messiness to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so 
the difference between the symbolic world and the scientific world is that the symbolic world will add one layer uh, on top of that, which is that it has to do with, it can help you see what you care about mm-hmm. because you care about an image of a divine feminine woman because it relates to everything about you. It relates to your wife, to your mother, to your sister, to the image of the city as the, as the, the uh, to your home as the bosom, to your city as the, the, this, the space in which you live and find communion. And so to see an image of a woman and, and to, uh, that, that is, embodies all of that, let's say, principle of femininity into one image will bring you one level higher than seeing, you know, the synthesis of these two chemicals in a very nice, clean way. You know, that, that's fine. It's good. It has, it, has, it has a truth and joy to it. But the icon will give you more because it tells you, gives you something that why you care about. That other experiment, you need something else, like to know that it'll make your phone faster or to know that it will... That's what will make you excited about it, to know that you can now conduct electricity better. That's what will get you excited. But the image of the mother, it's all there, in there already. It's like it's bringing it all together. How, how does the symbol do that, to show me something that I care about? Well, because it has to do with attention. We attend to the things we care about. And so when something grabs your attention, when it appears to you as, as the central focus of your of your attention, right? So uh, a a boring version of that would be you're standing in a room full of strangers and a beautiful woman walks in. And then without you even trying, without all of a sudden, it's like the attention turns towards that person. And so we have something about us. Humans have a hierarchy of attention and that hierarchy of attention finds its resolution. And so that, let's say that experience in, in like a religious context, they would say, be careful of that. Like there are better levels of attention, which will bring you, which maybe require more effort, but which will bring you further in life. And if you get distracted by every beautiful girl that walks in, but the process of attention, that's what makes the symbol. That's what makes the symbol grab you is because it, it takes, especially a story is a good example. Like you have all these things happen to you. And there are things that make you care about what happens to you. Now, if I can take the things you care about that happen to you and I can string them together in a way that brings together all the little times that this happened to you that you cared about into one beautifully uh, aesthetic short version of all the things you care about, then I will have your attention in a way that you can't stop. Like you can't stop because it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like crack for events. It's like giving you this drug that will, that brings you to another level of what you care about because it condenses it. All these little tidbits that you have during the day. It's like, let's say you watch a romantic story. Like there, there's no way that you, the, let's say you even do have a romantic story with your wife or with your girlfriend or whatever. Uh, there's no way that you can condense that into an hour and a half in a way that will give you dopamine kicks the whole time, like just nonstop for an hour and a half. It's a long thing and it has a lot of messiness to it. It's kind of you can drag it into a story and then you can live in that memory to let, let's say, keep your relationship going. But a movie or a story will just catch you because it takes attention and condenses it into short intervals of time or images. Or I don't know if that, that I hope that makes sense in terms of understanding how symbolism works. It has to do with attention. It's interesting. Also, listening to your language, uh, the way you talk about center, 
and fringes, how you talk about uh, chaos and order. Uh, there's a, an, a natural tendency to talk about hierarchy. And hi hierarchy, uh, in, in the end, the way I hear you is also that the symbols, they don't stay alone. alone. They are interconnected in a wholeness that creates a universe and the universe is organized by something that is meaningful. And me meaningful and attention, I guess, is something that's at least very related, something that's very meaningful to, you, to me in whichever may be my highest uh, kind of forms of meaning or my lowest forms of meaning, but it's meaningful to me, creates my universe. Yeah. So as I understand you, the symbolic world is in that way organizing or allowing me to relate to the meaningfulness of world as it shows up. And the big traditions are in that way also a way of invitations, how let's say wise traditions uh, kind of saw how meaningfulness unfolds in the world and allow me or allow us to participate in that in relationship to the symbol, but also in ritually interacting with the symbolic world as a direct engagement with meaning as it shows up. Is that path, the symbolic world, the symbols, the icons, allow me to directly participate in the meaningfulness of the world? Exactly. That's exactly what it is. You, everything you said is perfect in terms of that, how the, we, we have created an, an idea that there is the world of phenomena, let's say scientific phenomena. And then there's this strange thing about human interaction and human engagement and human psychology, which is somehow separate from all these other things. But when you get to the end of that, and it's interesting because almost when you get to the end of materialism and you want to now try to analyze all the human interactions, the rituals, all of this thing, all of this stuff, you realize that all of, all of these, that's what they are. They're just ways to participate in reality in a manner which will bind us together as people uh, bind us together in different ways. And so ritual ends up being one of the most, <laughs> ends up being kind of like one of the most, the most rational way to engage with reality is ritual. Because it is the way in which you, you, you are able to compress attention and not be dispersed all the time. And to actually find a type of, of satisfaction in the world because you're able to, you're able to compress it in ways that you can participate. And so it's the, it, but it, it really goes very low. That is, it's because we don't realize that the way that you drink from a cup is a ritual. It's a ritualized action. Drinking from a cup is a ritualized action. You recognize the purpose of a cup and you, and you, you engage with it in an order of, of using. You can't, if you put the cup upside down and you try to pour water in it, it's not going to work. It has an order of use. And you, when you do it properly, then you get the most joy and participation in the cup. Well, it's the same between people and it's the same between, between events. Events also have that sense. They have, when they enter into a certain order, then we find the most satisfaction in participating in them. So how to interpret you, how do you interpret the emergence of the modern world and the postmodern world? with its kind of uh, shying away or running away of this kind of meaningful uh, centeredness that the traditions provide us. Uh, 
Why? What happened? Why? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's happening, and obviously, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely happening. Yeah, I mean, I it has to do with it has to do with death. So one of the things about this pattern is that it does move from the center to the periphery. It the meta pattern. Sometimes you could say the the pattern, the meta pattern, in the sense of how the pattern breaks down, is also part of the story. And so the modernity and the and enlightenment and the modern world is a moving out into the forgetfulness, like moving out into forgetfulness, moving out into the edge, moving out into a world where you have one of the aspects also of the of the going down the mountain or going away from the center is to is an increase in power. And and that makes that makes total sense because as you move away from an identity and you gather things from the outside, you, you increase your, your power. Uh, you could say that a, a good example, a very simple example would be that, let's say you, you have, a, you have a, a group, like an army, and you're like, and you say, oh, we have this goal, we have this purpose, we're going to, we're going to take over this land, but you don't have enough people. So you start to gather people from the outside, you order mercenaries, you start to move towards power, you start to move away from the, the common thing that brings you together. At some point, if you go too far in that, at some point, it's going gonna, it's gonna to break down. You're going to gather so much power, but that power will forget the purpose and you're going to start to break down. And science does the same thing. It's like as we move away from the purposes of, of, of humanity, we start to gather facts and powers and we're, we can do this, we can do that, we can do this. But the more we do, the less we ask ourselves whether we should, and the less we know why we should or shouldn't. We don't even know by what means to decide what we should do. And so as we move in that direction, we're moving towards a kind of collapse. Now, it doesn't mean that the collapse will be total. It doesn't mean that it will. We hope that at some point, one of the things that that will do will make people kind of wake up. It's, it's possible. And that there will be a kind of awakening where, where people will be able to return to the pattern and under, understand the good and then reapply it to all of this. There's an image in scripture, which is the image of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. And the, the idea of the heavenly Jerusalem is, is the notion that all of our human endeavors, which at the outset in the story were actually negative, uh, civilization in scripture and weapon making, all of this is seen as negative. It's, it has something to do with violence, inclusion, exclusion. You make a city, you exclude people, you include people. But this whole image moves in the end towards this glorious city. So there's a hope that in the end, all of this forgetting will lead to, to, a, to a remembering. And hopefully all of this science won't lead just to, to uh, let's say, to cyborgs and, you know, the kind of transhumanist fantasy that people have that is almost, that is kind of this robot world, but rather will lead to a remembering, but it's not a, it's a toss up sometimes I think. When I encounter symbols, rituals, um, Christian, Orthodox or other spiritual, I do have a response to it, mm. uh, but there is, how, how should I put it? They don't necessarily talk to me. It needs something for me for symbols to start to talk. Um, although uh, to some degree, I think uh, it's uh, they, they talk to everyone, but uh, uh, they, 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 let's say there's a, a limit of that. Mm. What makes symbols talk? 
yeah, the, it's it's communion because it, the symbol because humans are the agents of symbol symbolism. That is, intelligence is the mediator between invisible patterns and the world, and so that's why the, it ultimately is not about. I mean, yes, icons are important, mm -hmm. but we need the communion of love before that to to be real. That is, there is in there is a normal hierarchy of being. There is, we have, let's say the, the image of the church is the best image because you have, when you come together, you attend to the same things together, you help each other, you love each other, uh, but you're also like you, you, like I said, you're also, you're still attending to the same things. So you bow before the icons, everybody comes and bows before the icons, you light candles, you sing together. All of these things will warm up the symbolism <laughs> will 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 put blood into them because it's not just about this this cool interaction with a uh, with a, an image or with a story but it's a participation when the greeks told the story of the iliad they were telling their story mm -hmm. it wasn't just a, an entertainment or something to think about they were remembering the story of their ancestors and they were using it as a as a means to connect to a real living uh, river of, of transmission of humanity. And they were using it to bind together to, as a people as well. And so that's what symbolism is supposed to do. It's not about, it's, it's not just about this cool uh, interpretation, but it really is this embodiment and this entering into, entering into the story. So it's like if to, to, to really, for an icon of Christ to talk to you, you ultimately you have to go to communion and eat and drink the blood and body. You have to kiss, give the holy kiss to the parishioners. You have to smell the incense and, 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 uh, and you have to go to confession. All of this warm, all of this like warm, actual embodied practice is what will slowly bring this to life. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Uh, when you were talking about communion, uh, you, you went also in the communion of uh, the people participating yeah. in, 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 in the ritual. But the way I hear you, it's also the communion with the symbol itself, or at least uh, what the symbol stands for. And uh, what comes to my mind is something, again, uh, that Chomaveke uh, is talking about. It's participatory knowing. Yeah. And how uh, our kind of knowing, which you relate to interpreting what it is, is, is a certain kind of knowing that's different than participating in the reality that something is emanating. And when you talk about, from a Christian perspective, to participate in the communion and the Eucharistic, uh, this, at least when you do it for real, uh, you are participating with a mystery that has the power to transform you because you do something where you are, you go beyond your self-sense in, in a way and you participate something that stands in the symbolic role already as a mystery. So you maybe just as a form of practice in going to church, but you do it as a ritual in also anticipation that there's something that is more than just a, a nice story, but it's a reality that you can live in. So the symbolic world also says there's something, uh, there's a world that we can live in, the symbolic world is opening to us. And there is maybe where also the symbolic and the ritual come together. Yes, of course. 
Yeah, because when I use the word symbol, I really use it in its etymological sense, which is the word symbol means things that are put together, things that come together. And so kind of like we say the symbol of the apostles, which is you take all these different teachings and you gather them together into unity. So, so when I talk about communion, going to the cup and taking the blood and body, this is, you cannot separate that from also the care and forgiveness that we give each other as Christians. Those two things are completely connected. You actually are not supposed to go to the communion cup if you have not forgiven your brother. So all of this is, so the ritual brings together a more ethical practice, a more communal, uh, community, like a community practice. All of this comes together into the ritual. And so it's not just the ritual. It's like this entire web of things that are being bound together and, and dancing together towards the good. And at the same time, moving towards the good, but like I said, binding multiplicity into one. So let me ask, how do we do this? Because obviously where, where you come from and also how I understand you, uh, you, you're deeply committed to revival uh, also of the Christian truth. But obviously the world we're living in, I'm not talking about the secular world, I'm talking about the global world with its different uh, sacred storylines. Maybe the Hindu storylines, maybe the Chinese storylines, maybe the African storylines. Uh, one vision is that basically every, everyone gets baptized Everyone gets, gets, gets orthodox, but uh, is this uh, what you envision? Or if not, if there's a plurality of the spiritual past that the world has engaged in over the millennia, how do we uh, re-enter a symbolic relationship to life that also honors the difference of cultures and honors the truth of the traditions this culture embedded in? Yeah, well, the best way I believe to honor difference is to be something. Mm -hmm. One of the illusions that the West has done is to somehow think that they're nothing and that everything else is something. And so it has caused two opposite reactions. One is to, to act out like as if you're above everything and that all these other cultures, you know, they're fascinating and, and interesting. Uh, and the other one has also been to almost denigrate our own thing. And to only love what is strange because we recognize something in it. But I think the first step is just to, to just be something and not to think that we're above and not to think that we're just scholars sitting above all phenomena and analyzing it, but enter into our own story. That I think will be, I think will at least, at least create enough. And if you do it properly, like if you do it properly, like for example, if you look at the actual teachings of Christ, and the way that they should be embodied in the best way, then I think that that's the best place to stand in facing all the other cultures, all the other traditions, all the other identities, because Christ told us to, to love the stranger, to care for the stranger without necessarily giving in to the stranger, but rather to encounter others as the littlest of these, as the image of God in, in persons. And so to me, the, the best way to do it no matter what, is to embody the Christian life as much as possible, first of all, in your own self, and then hopefully being an, an agent of transformation in your little church or your little community to make that to make that as real as possible. And I, honestly, I know that people might, when I say it that way, they might think, oh, no, he's just being nostalgic or just being, uh, but I really, honest, I thought about this for a long time. I don't see another solution for the West 
at least for Europe, because for, for Europe, people of Christian descent, because the, the only thing else they can do is to take up another tradition or to be nothing or to be a kind of mush, like new age, the new age mush, where we, 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 we just kind of pick and choose all these different things and we participate in the fragmentation of the mm-hmm. world. No, I, I, I really understand what you're saying and uh, it, it makes a lot of sense. Just the fact you have to stand somewhere in mm. order to build relationship. You, can, you cannot stand nowhere in order. If you, have, if you want to have an authentic relationship, you have to come from somewhere to establish this relationship. And if postmodernism has actually given us the possibility of doing that. If you take postmodernism seriously, it says uh-huh. that you cannot, there is no view from nowhere. You have to stand somewhere. And so mm-hmm. for some reason, this postmodernism has been a tool to, to make valid every other narrative except for our narrative. And so mm-hmm. I say, let's take postmodern, postmodernism seriously. I will embody the story in which I am. I will, I will embody it to the best of my uh, possibility and, and, and then engage others in their difference for real. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it that the stories where... Difference between traditional times and our times, uh, uh, to, to make it short, is that the stories have to live together. Uh, the, in traditional times, the stories basically had their space to live in, and the other stories were far away. Mm. Now our stories are intermingling, and we are deeply interrelated with Buddhist stories, Hindu stories, uh, shamanistic stories, whatever. So that uh, st- stories affect each other. Yeah. Uh, how to deal with that. How to deal with that. Yeah, it's hierarchy. I hate to say it. I, I think that if you have a proper hierarchy, then there is actually a lot of room to engage with these stories from the outside. If you know what you are and you know who you are and what you believe, like I, I am deeply uh, uh, attached to Christ and to the Christian story. And in that attachment to Christ and to the Christian story, I have no problems recognizing a bit of wisdom from a Sufi mystic or from, uh, or from the Mahayana or from some other tradition. I have absolutely no problem, but it's all about hierarchy. It's, it's kind of like you have a good family and then you are able to visit someone else's family and say, wow, this is a nice family and appreciate the good things. But then you go back home and you live your life. You don't try to get the family to, to, you don't try to like import all the family's traditions into yours all of a sudden, or you don't, you know, you don't confuse your house with the house of the, of the other family, but in your, in your cohesion, you say, this is, I love this about your house. I think you, it's very well decorated. All these things are great. And I think that this is something that is, once you kind of engage the right mode of being, I don't think that's a problem. I don't think it's difficult to do. At least I don't, I don't find it that difficult to do anymore. Jonathan, thank you very much for this conversation. All right, it's my pleasure. Thanks a lot.